Welcome back to Wells Preachers Podcast. We're discussing the text for Easter Sunday, Year C. Our theme for this Easter series is victorious. So throughout the season of Easter, we're going to see how Jesus was victorious over all our enemies. But more will help our members see that they're not just passive observers in Jesus', Jesus triumph, sort of like fans watching their team win the game. But we're baptized into Christ, so his life is our life. We're participants in an Easter festal procession. Our theme for this particular day is Life Marches Victorious Over Death. Pretty straightforward theme as we celebrate Jesus' resurrection. Our participants this week are Pastor Caleb Kerbist, who serves at Living Savior Lutheran in Asheville, North Carolina. That's a dual campus congregation with the other campus in Hendersonville, North Carolina, which is served by Pastor Paul Zell. Pastor Zell also taught New Testament and other subjects at the seminary for many years. We also have uh, Pastor James Tiefel, who was professor of worship and homiletics at the seminary till this year when he retired. And he's now serving two congregations in Mequon, Trinity Lutheran and St. John's Lutheran. Also, we're excited to have Professor John Mitchell, uh, professor of homiletics at Wisconsin Lutheran Seminary. Uh, John's going to be taking over uh, some of the moderator duties in upcoming sermon series, so we're certainly thankful to have his help with that. I'm Pastor John Hine, coordinator of Wells Congregational Services. Caleb Kerbis, I'm going to start with you. We almost always begin the podcast with this question, and this week maybe the answer is so straightforward I shouldn't even ask it, but I'm going to anyway. What is the main point that you're hoping your people take home with them as they leave church this weekend? Um, yeah, thanks, John. Of all the challenges that uh, with there's so much to say, maybe to to keep it as nuanced to this particular text as possible. So under the theme that Jesus, uh, that this life marches over death, that this is not only a reality that we look forward to in eternity, um, a reality that was missing in those first observers in the gospel lesson, that first Easter morning. Um, but this is, a, this is even a taunt and a joy and a confidence that we carry with us in our lives. And, and we can even in a sense know that this is in our bodies even here and now. Uh, bodies that will be changed from mortal to immortality. So that that resurrection theme it, it nuanced in in First Corinthians that it's not just an eternity; it's a thing that we can we can even carry now through tears and through grief with confidence and joy. Thanks for that, Paul Zell. I'm going to pivot to you. Um, do you want to give us just a quick walkthrough of the lessons? What are they? How do they intersect? And how do they tie in with that theme for the day, life marches victorious over death? The gospel of the day is Luke 24, 1 to 12. It follows right in the heels of the women having watched them place the body of Christ in the tomb. So they had just witnessed death on that Good Friday. And the gospel has them coming back to the tomb. They find it empty. They're wondering about this, which I think is a significant thing. It comes up later with the Apostle Peter wondering about what he had seen when he entered the empty tomb. But the angel of the two angels, one of them speaks quite emphatically. He's not here. He's risen. It's just like he said. So the, that's the gospel of the day. The first reading is Isaiah 25. 
kind of comes out in, in, in the Apostle Paul's passage from 1 Corinthians 15 as well, that God, the Lord Almighty, will do certain things. He will destroy the shroud, the sheet. He will swallow up death forever. Uh, the Lord has spoken. Surely this is going to be the case. So there's a certainty. There's no certainly no wondering whether the Lord can or will do this, this, this conquering death. And then 1 Corinthians 15 in the setting is, you know, the entire chapter is devoted to the, the resurrection. Um, the apostle begins by going through the appearances of Christ after his resurrection. He even kind of, he, he asks the philosophical question, well, what would happen if you say there's no resurrection? Well, then we're still in our sins. But then emphatically he says, but Christ has indeed been raised. And then, of course, he arrives at the second reading, which is the text we're concentrating on, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 51 to 57. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Thanks be to God. He gives us the victory. Yeah, thanks for walking us through those. Uh, Jim Tiefel, so we're going to focus in on the second reading. By now, our listeners have done their text study. Do you have any initial thoughts either about the text or about how you might handle it in the sermon? Well, there's, there's so much to preach about on Easter Sunday. I mean, the Easter account is, first of all, the assurance that what Jesus said on the cross is true. It is finished. Um, then there's that whole issue that Paul raises in the first part of 1 Corinthians 15, that there is a resurrection of the body, that that um, we will live again. And then in 15 and following, then you get to the specific that Paul wants to address, and that is, okay, so when we rise again, what are we going to be like? What, what's going to happen to us? And that's where we are. So it, it would seem that this text proposes that the resurrection of Christ ended the inevitability of physical death, and it ended the inevitability of decay, and that Christ now gifts us with a radical and necessary change to our bodies, which is going to occur on the last day. So when we rise again from the, from the dead, or when he comes again in glory, whichever comes first, um, we are going to leave one mode of existence and enter another mode of existence, and that is that we will, our bodies will never decay again and our bodies will never die, and that's how we'll live in eternity. So I, I think that uh, to preach on that very specific theme on Easter Sunday, you have to kind of bring the other stuff in too. You can't let those other things be set aside. So you have to kind of find a way to balance this reality that we will be changed from imperishable, be changed from perishable to imperishable and from mortal to immortality at the same time that you focus on the fact that the resurrection now um, guarantees that eternal death, death and hell, is also conquered. 
Yeah, thanks for that focus. I mean, it, it's always struck me, 1 Corinthians 15, the beginning and the middle of the chapter talk about resurrection blessings I enjoy right now, the certainty of the forgiveness of sins. And this text focuses on the future blessings of the resurrection, but you're, that you have to pull, it, pull in the, the forgiveness right now is uh, a great point to make, which I guess I'll make, take it back then to you, Caleb. Um, so just based on this text, give us some points, could be law, gospel, application, whatever, that you're going to try and drive home in the sermon. Yeah, so with the, the point that we have these resurrection blessings right now in the middle of this resurrection chapter, there's also this resurrection blessing that we have right now in that although, although we live in this um, already declared status and we look forward to this reality, it's, a, it's not yet. It's, it's an already but not yet. Um, we, we, it still does give us this steely resolve and confidence that is incomparable compared to where, whatever we might try to hold on to or hope for um, in this life. And so the very fact that the, the fact that Paul's making is, you know, he can't kind of can't miss verse 50, although n- not necessarily included that uh, the, just the declarative statement um, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Um, so that sets the stage really to everything that follows in verse uh, when you look at verse 53, the perishable must uh, clothe itself with the imperishable, the mortal with immortality. So that everything that is everything that we have in this life is, is perishable. Um, you, you speak of victory. That means everything. There's one commonality between just about every single victory, except for one. And that is it all ends eventually. Um, so anything that leads us to cling to and hope for any type of retention in or stance in this life that's going to last is is purposeless. In fact, it leads it leads only to death. Um, and and any attempt to to fix that, maybe we we might say that some semblance of law, maybe in in some people. Um, but we know when you look ahead at verse fifty six, the, the working backwards, the the power of sin is the law, um, revealing what is wrong. Um, with this broken world and also with myself, it's never going to fix anything. So any attempt for me to try and fix it or retain it in and of itself um, is broke. It's broke. And in a, in a sense, it's, um, we can say it's, it's almost laughable because it, it, ends up in, it ends up in the grave. So if that then, the idea that I'm going to try and um, try and cling to something that's going to give me stance in this life is is going to end up in death. If, if that's whatever that is. And I think you could kind of make that broad maybe because um, Paul's making a lot of these points and, and, and we might say, one could even say this is maybe a climax in a way. Um, then the gospel is, well, finally, whatever that is, the sting of death, it's, it's defeated. It's crushed. And um, I find it interesting too, that when he, when he quotes uh, um, Isaiah, he, he replaces that word forever, which you would see in the Isaiah text with the word, with the word victory, but both are inherent in one another. And so it just kind of maybe builds on the sense of the type of victory and defeat of death itself, that it is this forever type of thing, the victory that can't be undone. Thank you. Thank you for that. Other thoughts? I think it's, it's a little tough in this, in this text to figure out how you want to preach the law. I mean, it would seem to me that this text addresses a malady that a, that a lot of 
Christians who, who believe in the resurrection and they know they're going to go to heaven when, when they die and they know their relatives are going to be in heaven when they die. But what's it going to be like? Um, what, what, you know, will grandma still have a limp? And, and um, will a baby be full grown? You know, you, you, just, you just kind of, I don't think that that, that that confusion could be preached as, as though it were a sin. But, it, but it, it's something that, that they think about and they, something that they, that they worry about. So, you know, to try to help them to understand that our bodies in this life are always going to, to, to decay. You know, some people say that you start to get, you, you, you start to degenerate when you're born. You can't do things at 40 that you could do at 18. You can't do things at 60 that you could do at 40. You certainly can't do things at 71 that you could do when you were 50. You know, the, the body, little by little, I read someplace that, that the, you lose 30% of your body mass after you turn 70. You know, so what, what's going to happen? What, what, what will happen? What we know is that at a certain point in time that Jesus is going to gift us with an incorruptible, an imperishable, a non-decaying, a non-dying mode, and that we will spend the rest of eternity in that non-decaying and non-dying mode. The rest of it, we're not so sure about, because he doesn't give us those answers. But we do know this. Yeah. Other other thoughts. The um, it's so it's not in this text. It's right before it. I suppose another answer that we get is the the body will be raised glorious. But I mean, how, what Jim raises is. That isn't just the question that the curious catechism class students ask, you know, what, so how, how old will I be in heaven? You know, what that, um, or what, what, how old will a child that dies or, or a, a, a disabled individual that lost a leg because of diabetes or something like that? What, what will they be? And the fact that quite directly the apostle uh, and quite emphatically, I declare this to you, um, says that it will be, yeah, that imperishable, uh, incorruptible, glorious, um, thanks be to God. I mean, this is all an aspect of the victory over death that, that we have. We have a, a vicar this year, and so that just to see the notes of, so what is the malady here? Uh, we... We help it, it kind of forces you to say aloud when you have a vicar, okay, what, what, what am I going to say? What am I going to write? Um, what, I, what I wonder is if this is adequate or not, that um, not only is death the worst problem of, of all, it's, it's, it's a robber, it's, it's the enemy, but um, it's our fault. The, the sting of death is, is sin, and not just Adam's, and not just those guys, but it's mine. And the, the, the power of sin is the law which condemns. 
So is, is that the, Jim mentioned earlier that just to wonder about what, what happens to our bodies in eternity maybe isn't sinful, but to, to uh, perhaps wonder, am I just a victim of death? I didn't do anything wrong. Um, well, yeah, um, I, the, the law convicts me. Jim. Yeah, exactly. And I, I think that's why I wish that verse 50 would have been in this pericope. I mean, I'm going to bring it up in my sermon. Um, the, the, the fact of the matter is that because I'm sinful, I mean, and because I live in a world that's filled with sin, and because my tendency as a, as a believer who has an old self is to, to pick up on what the world around me does because I'm a sinner, so I eat too much, or I drink too much, or I smoke too much, or I, I, I go to places and I, I put myself in situations where my body decays where I had so there I think is certainly a place where you can you can apply the, the law and, 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 and point out that because of this my body decays and, and Jesus' victory takes that away he takes that sin he, he, he renders that sin powerless over me not only am I free from sin in heaven, but there is no sin around me in heaven. Caleb, did you have a thought? And to build on that further, I wonder if when we're dealing with this, this perishable flesh and blood cannot enter the kingdom of God, it must be clothed with immortality, um, it must be clothed with the imperishable, that we also might consider the... <clears throat> what is going to be maybe a reaction to that? Um, maybe if I'm thinking about the skeptic in, in the pews, who's thinking like, you know, whether, you know, Paul's talking, talking a message about uh, the a flesh and blood resur resurrection that wouldn't be popular in Corinth in his day. Um, I'm wonder how much popular that would, would be with some general spirituality in our day. And so I, I wonder in connection to what you were just sharing before Paul and Jim, if there is also this reaction that we should address in in the malady idea of of generating the sermon, namely that the idea of of, of perishable being clothed and like whoa, um, due to uh, this tendency and even a proclivity to cling to and hang on to the things that are that that connect us to so much to this life, to whether or not people can even see that as a big deal to begin with. Um, I, so I wonder if there's maybe even a before and after to that that I haven't fully explored conceptually yet, but. Um, have just been kind of trying to take a lot of notes on in how people react to this idea because it is a mystery. Um, but when we're when people are reacting to that, how much is it driven by this clinging to life, clinging to whatever is going to keep them safe, a, a, a physical aspect that ultimately does end in death? So identifying to them, that's not going to do it. So clearly, only the resurrection can do it for you. What? When you guys were talking about this thing of death, I had two quotes that came to my mind. One is Epicurus. So I'm sure I'm quoting him wrong, but where he, he talked about how um, what we fear is not that death is annihilation, but that it isn't. Um, that when we die, this thing of death is sin. Is that we just, even an unbeliever, their conscience tells them something is something bad might happen after death. And this is, so the second quote is uh, Hamlet's speech in Act in Act Three. Um, where it's the to be or not to be, um, and, and then he so he's 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 
debating whether it's better to be dead or to be alive. And he concludes uh, um, that that the conscience makes cowards of us all. And in other words, I'm not going to kill myself because I'm afraid of what could happen to me after death. The sting of death is sin. It seems like you guys were onto a pretty good um, malady thought there. Other thoughts? Jim? I think when you when you get into them, what I would consider to be the main part of the of the what does this mean to me to sermon when you have to talk about that there needs to be a change from a dying mode into a not dying mode. I think that's that's the place where you you can identify the reason the reason why we're in a decaying mode is because of sin. And I, I think you can, you can grab onto that and proclaim that. Um, I don't have a whole lot of skeptics among these old people in Quad. You know, they, they kind of all see themselves as decaying. But I think if you're preaching in Andersonville or you're preaching in Asheville, where you have a you know young educated people, I think that that's probably a you know more of a real thing. And and I would I would feel necessary to address that. Other thoughts? The, um, th- this is kind of a little shift in the, in the topic, but in, in looking at the gospel of the day in Isaiah 25 and now this, the, the, the certainty of this, the emphatic nature of this, um, we have a a number of, of members that have come out of a out of a non-confessional Christian background where everything's up for grabs. There's really everything is questioned almost as if that's a that's a virtue. Um, you know, whether whether are we are we really sinners, are we really accountable? And, and this one in particular that is life after death, is it is it real? Or is it just something that's said to make us feel better? So the 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 emphasis, the the emphatic nature of Paul's statement here, and of course of the way uh, the angel spoke to the women, um, is 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 very significant here. Um, and obviously that's always been Easter, but I think to to. Um, to recognize what a great opportunity we have to just say something about what's there's there's no wondering about this there's no doubt about it there's no question this is what will happen and here's the way the apostle lays it out well there, absolutely i mean i i don't i don't think you can preach on the second reading or on the first reading on easter sunday without also preaching on the gospel you 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 have to you have to state the objective facts of the resurrection for everybody who is there. And so there is a, there's a challenge to try to mix those two things. And, and I think it's also true that you, you preach a text to, to different people depending on where you are. I've, I've really noticed this in the last three years that I preach much differently now than I preached at Grace where I preached for 35 years, because the, the crowd is different. The, the hearers are different. So, you know, you have to be ready to say, I think this is really a cool thought to preach about, 
but it really isn't so applicable to the people who are sitting in your pews. That's a great point. Other thoughts? Maybe one thing that you mentioned, you both mentioned before that is applicable is not being unable to kind of get over these aspects of, of the clear gospel. It's interesting that with Luke, it's, it's, it's just a short 12 verses and there's, there's no exaggeration. There's no, um, there's no real hyperbole. There's, there's nothing flashy. Um, and, and I think there's a time here for, for preachers also to maybe even, um, to, to speak to that. There's, there's not, no reason for them to defend themselves as these people who were, who were, doubtful and didn't understand it and did not believe and they identify themselves as such. And so the only thing that could change their minds, of course, and their hearts is, is well, that this was true. Um, but what's also interesting is that when you take the, everything that's really heavy on the hearts of these women, um, there's, there's a neat parallel in there with what you think is heavy on the hearts of every believer, including the ones that the first Corinthians 15 text is preaching to you think of early in the morning, preparing all of that, and walking, and then they've fallen down on their faces. And of all the questions they're asking, they're not asking the right one because the angel uh, just just puts it right in front of their face. Um, why do you look for the living among the dead? Um, the one question you should have been asking, but but weren't. Um, and so that emphatic nature of it all, as Paul, you mentioned before, really does ring true for us to just say it, just to say it and not unapologetically. Jim. One of the things that I was kind of interesting to me as I worked through this is in 50, he says that no one, the flesh and blood cannot inherit. Um, and then in, in 53, um, the translation is, for the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable. Then in 54, when the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable, and I'm, I'm not the world's greatest Greek scholar, but working through those two forms, um, the form in 53 can also have a passive sense. So I, I wondered if someplace in this sermon I can talk about the idea that, that, um, that this is a gift I am given, that, that Christ imparts this imperishability to me. And he imparts this immortality to me. And I think that's part of what, that'll show up someplace in my sermon. Let me just ask you guys a question on, on that particular on that particular verse. Um, with the, the imperishable being closed, or with the perishable being closed with that which is imperishable, is he just referencing our bodies and saying that he's eternal? Or is he speaking more broadly and talking about at the last day that also in creation, that that which we see falling apart right now in our world uh, um, will be imperishable? I think the, the reason I asked the question is because it changes the specific gospel a little bit just from I'm going to live forever because of God's grace to really a, a discussion about uh, um, just a view of Christianity, that Christianity isn't like... Uh, overcoming the physical realm it's a redemption of the physical world uh, um it's paradise restored Do you guys have any thoughts on what's meant by perishable and imperishable there i think that's a sermon on romans 8 i'll sure. preach it another sunday okay i mean it's certainly there it's certainly there but i think the whole emphasis in in first corinthians 15 is on the on the, the flesh and blood on the body I mean, individual. I, I could see adding a sentence, but 
Sure. There is some some of this, of course, is dealing with the way the way a, a lot of our people view life after death. They don't see it as physical at all. Um, and whether it's floating on clouds, strumming harps, or whatever it is, they, the, the, it, it. I think in their mind, it's less real than it really could be if they're actually paying attention to the text. Um, so, flesh and blood, bodies. Um, there's again, the the reality here is um, just as death is real, death is very real. Um, you you go to the funeral and there's your there's your sister-in-law's and you know her ashes are in that little jar there, there or you see the the, the, the body um, in the uh, in the casket at the uh, at the visitation and as real as that is as as much as that's a slap of reality in the face uh, the apostle Paul's reality is of course the the, the greater thing the greater certainty and um yeah even the even to emphasize the flesh and blood aspect of this in of course glorified imperishable incorruptible what a what a what a privilege that is jim well and there's job 19 i mean you know i will see him with my own eyes in in first john i think this applies where john says First John um, 3, um, 1 or 2, um, as we are children of God and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him. So there are just, I, one of the illustrations I thought of was, you know, um, I'm not going to try to claim that I'm all that much into babies, but so when you hold somebody else's baby... You know that's kind of cool, and you anticipate in your mind. I wondered what I wonder what it'll be like when I hold my own baby, but you can't really you can't really know. There's no experience that comes close to holding your first child in your arms for the first time. Um, I I baptized dozens and dozens of babies when I was in Saginaw. But there was no baptism quite like baptizing David, my son, you know, and I couldn't I couldn't have experienced that until I actually did it. And so the same will be true in heaven. You can you can think about it, but it it, you can't imagine what it will be like until it's there. It's a great illustration. Caleb, you had something. In, in relation to both of those comments about, um, you know, whether it's Job 19 or 1 John, even you, you can't help but think of First um, Peter, or excuse me, First Thessalonians 4.13, where um, we do not grieve like the rest of those that, that have no hope. We believe that Jesus died and rose. And so we believe that God will take with him all, the, uh, all those who have fallen asleep in him. And just the ability to be able to say that at a funeral to people who they, they just want to see their loved one again, when, when speaking about the specific nature of, and even the, the very definitive language that's used, swal- what is swallowed up, it, it, there's an op- maybe an opportunity for the preacher to get personal about that, to be able to say um, it's more than just the aches and pains. But the ver- you know the you said before, Paul, death is a robber. Um, the, the feeling that there is a literal hole in your heart, and maybe physically your grief can do that to a person too. 
um, all of those things, it, whatever, whatever it is, whatever you want to fill those blanks in with, with whatever death is that is, that is swallowed up from the, not just the grief of losing a loved one, but even when we look at ourselves and the fears that we have too, um, it is all swallowed up. And of all the places that he could point, he's not just pointing to this new enlightenment or knowledge. He's pointing to the empirical fact of the resurrection that he's already and continues to make the very strong case for. Jim. But I, I think in this sermon, I think you have to kind of be careful that you don't give them the impression that they should stop feeling sad about when somebody dies. True. Um, you know, that, that I, I remember the first time I took my father out to my mother's grave. I kind of let him by and beat himself by himself. And he went over and stood by the stone. And I could see that his shoulders were shaking. He didn't want her back. He knew that she was in heaven with the Lord. He just missed her. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, no matter what you say, and, and no matter how strong your hopes in Christ are, and no matter how sure you are that your bodies are going to be different, you still miss people. Mm-hmm. So you can't give the impression, all right, you guys, don't be sad at funerals anymore. Right. And and it, whether one uses that passage, we don't grieve like the other ones. He doesn't yeah, say we don't, we don't right. grieve. Yeah. It's um, different. And, and we could even say like the, 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 the word taunt has been used um, and you think of a, a victory march in life. Um, <laughs> think that that taunt or victory march is without tears and without, you know, shoulder shaking, as you described, Jim. Um, certainly that, that marches through the tears, right? Do, do you guys think this is fair? Uh, you, you, Jim brought up death has been swallowed up in victory, which seems to be implying that death somehow impacts our perception of the victory. I think I've used this illustration before, and t- tell me if you think that this was not, not fair, but um, like you, let's say someone is annoyed by their their pet, and but then the pet runs off and it's lost, and you get it back. And like this, this annoying dog, you know, you love it even more because that which you lost – you thought maybe it was gone forever you have back and in that sense like it's not just that death is set aside at the resurrection but it increases our appreciation our our um i don't know if it say increases our love is the right but increases our appreciation as we get all these christian loved ones back again um the fact that we'll that we lost them in the first place is going to make our joy that much greater in the resurrection is the you think that's a fair understanding of what it, what's meant by death has been swallowed up in victory? Paul? I think this is along the same lines, and maybe to what Jim said earlier, that that the, the loss at death of a loved one is not just the loss of the idea of that person. Uh, they're not there. Uh, the the other side of the bed is empty. The, the, uh, the, the chair where grandpa used to sit all the time is, is empty. They're not there. So the, 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 the resurrection and the return of, of glorified grandpa, of one's spouse, of the, 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 and, and all that goes with that is just an extraordinary victory. So again, I, um, the, the the word physical keeps coming to mind. I, I realize he uses the word spiritual in the previous passage, but I don't think he's meaning just spiritual as a nobody, um, kind of a humiliation state that's done. Um, and the, the, the victory 
is the victory of, um, of, of a real spiritual resurrection of a glorified imperishable. All, all those great, great adjectives are here. Jim. Kind of changes the subject. It goes to the end of the past, the Kirkaby a little bit. Um, <clears throat> when Christ gives us the victory, does, does that mean that he obeyed? If, if the sting of death is sin and the strength of sin is the law, then does that mean, would I preach that by saying that Christ obeyed the law in our place and that he carried the, the, the punishment of sin on his back and by that way he swallowed up death in an even wider definition? I mean, is, is that where the victory lies in, in the, in the active and passive obedience of Christ? Is, is it is finished, the victory that is then applied to all different facets of life? I'm, I'm comfortable with saying yes to that. Uh, the, that particular verse um, is... It's just kind of fun to, to look at that. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. So if Christ fulfilled the law for me, us, um, and suffered the punishment that uh, a just God deserve, that a just God demands, then there's no power of sin. And then if there's no power of sin, then it has no sting. Then it has so, no decay, and it has no death either. Right. I just wondered how, how I was going to how I was going to preach that. And so the uh, the sting is kentron, which I think just refers to a, like a, a venomous. Yeah. It's not just a bite, but there has to be venom in it. Like I think it's in Revelation where it's applied to scorpions. Mm-hmm. And so you I mean that's one way of picturing it is like Jesus is to, is we still get bit by death, but there's no venom in the in the bite anymore. There's nothing that can really hurt us. Um, it's a prick, which, um, but it doesn't kill us. Not like Steve Irwin got it. <laughs> uh, yeah, that'd be a great illustration. Other thoughts? Not many people would remember it, but. <laughs> Stingray stinger right through the chest. One of the things that, that I always, Paul, Paul Zell knows this, one of the things that I always think about when I preach on the second or the first lesson is how I'm going to bring the gospel into this sermon. So, I, so I, the way I envision this sermon in my own head, I'm going to talk about, I'm going to start by talking about the women walking toward the tomb site expecting to find a dead body. And then the resurrection changes their expectations. And I'm going to then move to the resurrection changes our expectations about life after death, that at at a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, something's going to happen. Then I was going to go to the women reporting to the disciples the resurrection, and they thought it was nonsense. 
and that Peter ran out there to look and he didn't understand it. And so it, the resurrection changes our confusion and it helps us to understand what has to happen as we walk into eternal life in heaven. And the third gospel point I was going to raise was that the, um, the angel focused the women's attention on what Jesus had said on the plan of salvation. And that, that Paul then focuses our attention on, on Christ and on what Christ did. So that enables me somewhat to be able to have the gospel account on Easter, to have a presence in my sermon, but at the same time be able to preach the text as it means to be preached. So I kind of think that that's the way I'm going to approach that. I'm, I think my theme is going to be Easter changes us. Any other, other thought? I mean, just along those lines, um, like a, when I was thinking of a potential like application, you just talk about change us. That that the way we live in the present is shaped almost entirely by our perception of what's going to happen in the future. And this is an illustration. I can't remember who who preached it, but I remember it vividly talking about you know like two ladies working the same job, kind of a mundane, menial type of labor job where they get paid just once a year. One thinks they're going to be paid 10000 at the end of the year. The other thinks they're going to be paid $10 million at the end of the year. So one goes to work just shoulder slump, drudgery. The other goes to work skipping with a whistle because of their perception of the future. And uh, so that, that kind of, maybe that application might fit in with that theme that, that yeah, Easter changes us. I like it. Other thoughts? It's it's maybe in in the um, it's in the theme for the whole series that the word victorious stands out. So that obviously that's changed too. I mean, if I if I look at myself or others look at themselves, we're um, we're, we're kind of losing here. <laughs> Things aren't going so good. Um, and whether it's you know the wider culture or things happening uh, that that bother you in our in our country or things in your own health. I was thinking of the illustration earlier how bothersome it is to look at a young picture of yourself and then look at yourself in the mirror now. Um, that's kind of this this experience of constant loss. Um, not and I'm never getting that back. And yet here's this. Um, the, the the victory changes how I perceive myself. You said, John, the victory per se changes how I work. It changes how I uh, how I live. How I how I even look at my own my own declining aging body, knowing that. Well, and of course, Paul's quite clear on what what, what we're confident in. I kind of had a very similar thought, just that um, with all of the language that leads us towards the eternal reality in bodily, even um, just that this is the one victory that doesn't end. And so there are several implications for, for us and what that will mean for us in the perishable being clothed with imperishable and everything that's broke in this world and only ends in death that ultimately Christ overcomes. So um, 
that's kind of a that's that's a working theme um not nothing too structured underneath that beyond what professor keith shared jim i just think you have to be careful with a text like this about about getting too maudlin i mean it it finally is easter and you have to find a way to be to just you know to, to be realistic but to be um don't let it be don't let it become a downer you know <laughs> help them to walk out of church with it with feeling good feeling happy and not why does he have to preach about death on easter <laughs> <laughs> i mean they think that way sometimes i i started a sermon one time on easter sunday by saying i'm afraid to die and I got, I mean, I explained it through the course of the sermon, but I got a nasty letter from a lady who said, what a way to start an Easter sermon. <laughs> <laughs> Paul? No, I, I wasn't raising my hand. I was just kind of doing that. Oh, well, that's, <laughs> okay, gotcha. that acknowledges something. Did you, of course, you asked her, you, you did listen to the rest of the sermon, <laughs> did you? <laughs> <laughs> Well, any any final thoughts? Nothing better than preaching on Easter. Absolutely. And I, well, thank I, haven't, you. I haven't done it in 35 years. The first year I was at Trinity was a choir tour year. The second year I was still active at Grace on Easter Sunday. Last year was was COVID. So I haven't preached on Easter Sunday in 35 years, and I'm looking forward to it. Fantastic. Well, Lord's blessings to all of you as you bring God's word to people and to our listeners as well. May the Spirit grant you wisdom as you begin uh, crafting your sermon. Look forward to, uh, see, to, to being with you again next week. Uh, looking forward to having Professor Mitchell uh, moderating the rest of this victorious series. Talk to you then. <laughs>